I'm Lexi and this is Hannah and we're Wild About Conservation. This is the podcast where we explore the world of conservation through discussions with our very knowledgeable guests and this season's focus is on all things ocean. In this inspiring episode we're joined by a friend of ours Harry Wright who is a lawyer, a social entrepreneur expert and a passionate conservationist. Harry is the CEO of the Conservation Project International which is an international NGO which empowers young people to reach their potential and become future leaders in conservation. We chat about how his training as a lawyer gave him an invaluable set of skills to be the conservationist he is today, the different projects under the TCP remit and how they are supporting the training of the next generation of conservationists. Hi, thank you for chatting to us today. So can you firstly introduce yourself to our listeners, who you are, what you do, your pronouns and your key interest in conservation? Well, thank you very much. And uh, it's, it's, uh, I'm delighted to, to be joining with you both. Um, so my name is Harry Wright. I am the CEO of the Conservation Project International. Uh, my pronouns are he and him. And my interest in conservation is helping to support and mentor the next generation of young conservationists and think of new collaborative ways of solving urgent conservation issues. That all sounds amazing. I am so excited for this episode and to get to talk about your work a little bit more. So before we take a deep dive into your experiences, Harry, we do have a short game we like to play with our guests. So it's supposed to be this really fun quick fire round of a couple of questions to keep you on your toes to warm you up and so we get to know you a little bit better. So firstly, if you could live in any habitat, what would it be? Coral reef system. Nice. What is something that you love that has absolutely nothing to do with conservation? Marmite toast. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and if you could fly, breathe underwater or hibernate, what would it be? I think I would fly. Nice. I wasn't <laughs> expecting the answer of my my toast. <laughs> I had a this morning. I like that. Fly and eat Marmite toast. It sounds good while on a coral reef. Uh, so finally, every episode, Harry, we ask our guests how they get wild about conservation. So, how do you get wild? Good question. Um, I love just being in nature, really, and the I think the excitement of looking for a species and the adventure of going to somewhere amazing whether it's a rainforest or you know a coral reef and yeah just just taking it all in I think is uh, what I really enjoy with, with the natural world. I like that kind of thought there of yeah taking it all in I said to someone the other day it's it's that moment you step off in a beautiful place and you just stop for a second is such a nice feeling. Absolutely and I think definitely as well being locked down for so long um can't wait to go back and enjoy nature yeah yeah I think everybody's been very well acquainted with their local nature which is wonderful in itself but I can't wait to get a little bit further away from my own house (laughs) yes same definitely um right Harry so now on to the main topic you and your life um I met you when we were doing an internship kind of as a crossover a few years ago so I know a little bit about you but would you care to tell our listeners kind of your education and your history and then kind of what really got you into conservation 
Yeah, sure. No. Um, so, so basically, so uh, by profession, I'm a, I'm a lawyer by profession. I qualified as a solicitor back in 2016, which is now seems a very long time ago. And I originally started off working in in corporate law, and worked on some renewable energy transactions, which was quite interesting, but mainly sort of in the healthcare and in the sports sector. And I soon realized that working till two or three in the morning um, wasn't really quite what I was after. So I've always had this burning passion for conservation and the environment. And I, when I was actually training as a lawyer, I used to have a blog where I used to speak about certain conservation issues, mainly back in, back in that, that was back in 2015. It was more around sort of Sumatra and what's happened with the orangutan and indigenous communities and, and things like that. So when I when I qualified as a lawyer, I realized that my, you know, my real passion is in conservation. And it was then when I decided to start up the conservation projects um, back in 2017, just before I came uh, to see Lexi in the Maldives. And from there, really, it's sort of taken off um, over the last couple of years. We've we've done a huge amount of work working with young conservationists from around the world and working on different research projects and um it's been very exciting and it's been so fulfilling. And I'm so glad that I made that decision um, back then to actually set up my own organization and, and to try and you know do as much as I can to support the next sort of future of change makers. Um, so, so that's really the, the journey. It's been, we've now helped, I think over the last two or three years, nearly 500 young people from around the world. We've worked on 10 different research projects from around the world. We've done uh, numerous events with Plymouth, Bristol UE, Oxford University. We've got a thriving community of around 50 young people, um, which we, we speak with nearly every day. And it's just, yeah, it's just been remarkable. It's been the best thing I've ever done in my life. And I, I'm very excited about the future of the organization. And um, I think now is, a really good time to be you know working virtually and connecting with young people is is becoming more and more easier and more and more people are really interested in the space so yeah very very excited about you know what the future of the organization and where we're going to go that's really cool hearing how the conservation project international became um one of the things i've just two things i've picked up on there obviously you're talking about young conservationists is there a certain age band that you work with yeah, so so mainly the people we we work with are from eighteen to sort of thirty five. I would say that's branch, but we we have done events with schools as well. Um, but we've most mostly focus on um, undergraduate, postgraduate, sort of PhD and and professionals as kind of our target audience. I would say. And then in terms of the virtual working, obviously working with all these different groups of people, and for me, um, doing a PhD myself, something I've really noticed. With virtual working is how everything suddenly becomes so much more accessible even for me as a student because I used to be on field work all the time and not be able to actually join a lot of these training sessions do you think that you are using the virtual world much more now and are going to keep using that even say a year two years 2024 from now yeah definitely no I think it's a really really good question um and we've we've actually found the transition um more accessible as you mentioned and I think doing things online is actually a lot easier for, for people like, like yourself. You know, you're working on a PhD, but maybe you want to 
join an event at seven o'clock in the evening all you have to do is sort of log on to zoom and you can join a webinar um and i think having you know having the virtual landscape really opens up the international audience as well so we, we just we just did a recent event uh hackathon in, in december where we had 130 young people join from 16 different countries around the world so that for me the virtual landscape is a really great connection point to um to talk and discuss and meet new people and collaborate on different projects. The the downside to that is um, that having things in person is obviously a lot more personal. You know, you can really you can really um, connect with people. I think a, a lot more when you're in person. And then the downside is that you can't get to travel and see all these amazing projects um, for the minute. So that's been really depressing. Um, but I, I think virtually is is definitely the the future. And for us, it's it's definitely a platform which we're going to be using a lot more. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you there. I think there's definitely a sweet spot of virtual use as well as that human interaction because you can't you can't get rid of it. I think that's one thing that the pandemic has taught us is that we crave that human interaction for many many more things than we ever gave it credit for. So I think it makes sense that in the future you'll be looking at using both. I know the whole point is um, talking about you as this um, the head of this NGO, but I did want to ask, Harriet, are you still a lawyer? So, um, yes, I'm still a qualified lawyer and um, I've just finished working at a very big law firm. So I finished just before Christmas working there. I was working there for two years full time and I'm now working for a social impact organisation uh, which focuses in on uh, supporting entrepreneurs so what they what they term as and you may have come across this term as social enterprise mm-hmm. so so that's really my work at the moment is I work in the investment team at a, uh, a leading organization and we help um, invest in really cool uh, entrepreneurs and um, more more of a sort of business consultancy kind of role rather than legal um, but but and then at the same time obviously still doing all of the NGA work at the at the same time as well that sounds amazing. You've got such a wholesome career. But can I ask, other than passion, how do you manage to balance your job, the charity, and a life outside of that? Have you got any like secret hints and tips? Uh-huh. It's a very good question. Like, I do question this myself, actually, Lexi, quite often. <laughs> um, what, what am I doing? Um, <laughs> um, I guess it is, you know, I think the passion um definitely helps so when i when i work on conservation work i don't see it as a job you know mm-hmm. i see it as a uh, an interest uh, a hobby and um a kind of like a you know we have like a, a community like a family feeling with the organization a lot of these people which have joined us you know some of them are my really good friends now so it's 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 fun you know i really enjoy it and it's um it never seems like a hassle or it never seems like a full-time job when we're working on projects obviously when I'm working full-time as especially when I was as a lawyer and having to organize things in the evening and you know sometimes you have to work weekends you've got to get up early you're working till maybe 12 one o'clock in, at night time but I do it because I'm in a position to do it if, you, if that makes any sense you know I, I do it because I can and I feel I have a moral obligation to to also do it um so I feel a sense of duty in a way. I don't know if that really makes any sense, but it's because I care so much about the issue. 
it drives me to work even harder each year to try and solve some of these critical issues. Yeah, absolutely. And I think from what I know of the project, the way that you're doing it by empowering these young environmentalists and conservationists is really powerful because it's it's that whole thing. If you train one person, that's excellent. But if you train multiple people that you're building a network that can go on and it's much more impactful and it is that whole thing of sure everybody can think about doing like a cleanup as they go in for a walk around their local park that's excellent it has such a larger impact than you think it does just taking one bit of litter out of your environment so I think get you being a part of giving this education and this these skills to so many people is really powerful yeah no no, I totally agree and um, I think you touched on a really good point there around networks and um, for me in my own professional career uh, having a strong network around me and using things like LinkedIn and and, you know having calls and catch-ups with people and building that professional network has definitely helped me in my own professional career and I think that sort of community of experts cross sector, not only just conservationists, but people from the private sector, people from the engineering sector, you know, the construction industry, all of these areas which touch on environmental issues and can offer careers in, in the environmental sector. That is something which we, we're very strong on, you know, helping students create their own networks, you know, teaching them about business development, um, encouraging them to use LinkedIn to set up introductory calls to meet people. Because it only, you know, it could only take, you know, setting up a, a coffee or a virtual coffee with one person in HR or, you know, in, in a high up in an organization for you to get your foot in the door and to, you know, when you apply for that position, knowing the person already in that organization really helps. And these networks that we're, we're creating are of such interest, I think, to young people and, and such can really help you um, pursue, you know, better things in your career. So, yeah, no, definitely. I agree. I think networking is a really essential part of this. I think you've picked up and kind of talked about two really important things there of a the passion and sharing passion with other people and how that can evoke change. But also, like you've been saying, the networking conservation, this is something that's come up a few times in a couple of our recordings, is that conservation isn't just one thing. Conservation comes in so many forms and thinking I want to work in conservation does address potentially those networks and the different people that you meet and who knows where you're going to end up from lawyer to running a conservation uh, project and talking of those networks kind of other than yourself what does the team that helps you run the conservation project international look like yeah well um so our team is incredible we've got some amazing people that i work with and these are people, so basically the, the core team are, are people which I worked with very, when I first set the project up back in 2017. There's a one girl, I hope I don't, I'm going to name drop her, but she's called Abby, Abby Croker. And she came with us to Bonn in Germany at the um, just before the climate conference. And we presented at the Youth of Climate Conference, so the prior to the actual COP. But Abby, uh, back then, I think she was a undergraduate student she has been working with us on the community side um she's very good on the fundraising side and she's now gone on to do a, a phd actually uh, i think at imperial college in in climate change 
So she's been with us from the very start and, and has a huge amount of energy and, and, and you know, she's a real pleasure to work with. And then we've got a, a really cool team, I would say, of sort of 10 people I work with on a, on a daily and weekly basis. And these are people I've met along, along the way, um, people who I trust and um, bring different skills to the organization. So we've got two amazing people which joined recently, uh, Emma and Michael. Uh, Emma does all of our um, social media marketing. Uh, Michael's very good on our finances. And when you come to put together quite boring things like pitch documents and financial modeling, um, he's the man to go to for that. And yeah, so we've got just, we've got Emily who works on partnerships. Um, we've got scientists. So Rosanna is an amazing um, scientist in Italy and she's um, works with us on our wildlife crime work. Um, we have an acoustic scientist called Davide, and this guy is like seriously cool. He's like the, the coolest guy I've, I've met in conservation. So his job is to study the acoustic sounds of cetaceans. I mean, what? Imagine that. So, what do you do for a living? I I work with uh, whales and dolphins and listen to what they say. I mean, it's a pretty cool position. Um, and then my two directors I work with are David and Jessica, who are both global experts in international crime. Um, from the US, former US State Department uh, individuals. And yeah, they provide a huge amount of strategic oversight and, and help us link to uh, government bodies and and thinking of things from a sort of higher angle. So there's a there's a, an enormous amount of people that we work with really closely and um, each individual brings a unique set of skills to the organization. And um, really, you know, all of these people work on a, on a voluntary basis. So they put a huge amount of time and effort into into helping us with our mission and it's it's really heartwarming to, to see that yeah I think you're right even hearing you speak about it and about these friends really yeah. that you get to work alongside is so humbling and like I, I could just listen to your talk all day um but I did have a question so we've mentioned a couple of times this kind of um network building and knowledge building but would you be able to just give us a brief overview of what the Conservation Project International actually does to help young conservationists yeah of course um so one of the things we we do is we um so we help firstly students through like mentoring and, and as i mentioned networking and we actually link um young people to conservation research projects um, around the world so we we set up a marine biologist called dr andrea guy on a blue shark project in in cornwall and um, over the, the years, we've been sending young people to go with Andrea on the boat to study the sharks and to get some really great field research experience. We've also um, have projects. We, we worked on a project in Kenya with um, with Nazio Trust and Oxford University, and we've sent a number of researchers over there. And we also work on a cetacean project in, in Ischia, which is um, just off the Gulf, the Gulf of Naples, so very close to Naples. And that's an amazing project which um, studies five species of cetacean. And we sent, I think, around 20 to 40 um, young people there. So we, we basically link and um, provide you know, really great opportunities to get some field research experience, to uh, learn more about certain species and to work really closely with researchers. We also run collaborative events. So an example of that is that we run um, day workshops and day hackathons or afternoon hackathons with universities so we've recently done one with Plymouth University just uh, last month 
which was on the uh, marine illegal wildlife trade. And um, we've got this great relationship with Plymouth Marine um, Institute, where we, we do a number of like really cool events with them, where it's like an NGO challenge, um, linking their students to some of our projects uh, and doing these like hackathon type events. We've also got a number of projects which we did we did start to do um, just before COVID hit us, um, which sadly we've, we've just because of the, the difficulty in traveling really at the moment, we, we, we put those on the back burner. Um, and then the most recent work we've done has been around the Vaquita and, and there's a huge amount of work uh, to do on, on that on that topic as well. So yeah, we, we do we do an awful lot and and um, sometimes more than we can really manage. Um, but there's just there's just so much work to do, Lexi. It's crazy. Yeah, it definitely sounds that way. But I did you mentioned so many projects and so many like different even spheres of the world that you've worked in and with and these people that you've worked with on their specialties how do you decide which projects to do do you get contacted or is it about using this network of people that you've met and people that you know to create these projects for your charity to work on and help yeah it's a, it's a really good question I think um so basically I would normally go and visit the project that we we support so I, I want to make sure that it's the type of projects which I, I really love working with are, are researchers who are doing really important, impactful work, but don't necessarily have the, the support that the big NGOs have when it comes to funding and just mm-hmm. require, you know, um, some extra help, you know, whether it's either through promoting or doing joint articles or actually sending our volunteers to go work with them to help them with their work. And there's there's a lot of these researchers I, I come across, these research projects, and I, so I will normally, you know, meet and get to know the teams. Um, and if I, if I like them, we can then, we then work out, you know, what do they need? How can we collaborate? How can we provide them with a service? And that's normally the basis of how we start a partnership together. And I really try and search out these amazing people who are, you know, dedicating their lives to conservation, but really just just not getting enough support and without vital support the whole project will collapse and you probably come across many projects like this yourself and um, so they're the kind of ones we, we look at and we also do a lot of work around unique species as well um, mm-hmm. so some of the species i'm going to be working with soon are mainly cetacean focused so the, you know the vaquita um, had a great conversation recently around the Amazonian river dolphin, which is an extraordinary species, and um, yeah. humpback whales, orcas, and um, sperm whales as well. So uh, a lot of it is cetacean and marine focused as well. And just picking up on that, kind of, I'm just in awe of all these projects. <laughs> um, all of these different projects, obviously you've spoken about the marine illegal wildlife trade, the vaquita, the isha, blue shark project all of these others that are going on things to do with humpbacks um so i want to kind of get a bit more focus on those different projects so trying to pick which one to start with i think isha um and i might i hope i'm pronouncing that relatively correctly uh is obviously in italy as you said and i think people don't actually realize how many whales and dolphins and different species and what you might be able to see in that kind of area so can you give us a bit of an overview of the project the different 
publications you're working with? What kind of research is going on? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, so it's, uh, sorry, it's Ischia, uh, is the island. Ischia. Yeah. Even though your, your, your one sounded very interesting as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so Ischia is, um, so Naples. Um, so basically to get to Ischia, you've got to fly into Naples, which, um, my fiance's from Naples. So I know, I know the place really well which is a crazy town i don't know if you've ever been it's it's manic you know there's, there's... i got very lost there yeah several years ago <laughs> trying really? to get to a train station to get to pompeii and everyone just kept saying garibaldi and we were like who is garibaldi and garibaldi was a someone that dug i think it's to do with freedom um we thought they were imitating someone riding a horse they weren't they were imitating someone digging um <laughs> <laughs> so yeah been very lost there <laughs> yeah it's a crazy place isn't it it's um but that's why I love it. It's uh, it, the place is, is rich in history, as you mentioned. Pompeii is like you know, I think half an hour on a train. Um, mm. So to get to Ischia, you have to get a ferry from um, the port of Naples, and it takes about an hour on the ferry, and then you land on um, Ischia, which is a volcanic island. So um, and it's just a very beautiful place. Um, there is rich in um, enclaves and. Uh, the underground is all with the minerals it's very rich volcanic uh, region and the the research project there is called the Ischia Dolphin Project and is run by um, especially when I first visited it I went came to Ischia I think it's the second time I've ever been there and I had to get so there's not much transport on the island so you have to walk a lot it's obviously very hilly because it's a volcanic island and I was trying to find this port where there was a boat, which they run the uh, the project from. And I got to the boat and uh, there's the, the skipper or the captain, this guy called Angelo. And uh, this guy is like something from the National Geographic films back in 1950s. Um, we had homemade wine, which he makes. Um, so wow. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got a boat, which he built. I mean, it's this like this wooden ship like you know from i don't know from the pirate days which he's built um he's, he's just he lives on it as well and he's got a really really wow. cute dog which is also there um so angelo takes groups of students and researchers out on the boat uh into the marine past marine protected area which they have there and you go to so be on the boat for i reckon two or three hours and he is he knows all of the cetaceans very well there so they've got five species of cetaceans, including the sperm whale and the fin whale, and then three species of dolphin. They sadly had seven species of cetaceans in 1990, but just because of the um, pollution, overfishing and tourism, um, two species have disappeared from the area. But the the sperm whale there, so they, they basically are a research organisation. So they collect, um, they use hydrophones and they have uh, like a treasure trove of acoustic data and scientific research they um, identify uh, using a number of scientific uh, techniques the the whales and the dolphins that live there and they have a database and they do educational programs with uh, the local people in Ischia and uh, also online so they've done a lot of work there the yeah so so there's they've lost two species in the last 30 years um, but the, the really interesting thing about this project is that they have a, a subspecies of the sperm whale, which lives in and around Ischia. And what they found is that through their, their research is that this sperm whale has its own um, local language. So um, it's sort of cut off from the rest of the Mediterranean and it has its own local language, which I find fascinating. 
you know these are like local species which have their own uh, communication and yeah so they've done a, a lot of work on that and i do you know what the only downside to this project is every time i go there i never see a thing i think i'm like a, a bad omen to the project <laughs> because i've never actually seen any of the associations living there but the volunteers will come back and they're like yeah we saw you know uh, a group of rizzo dolphins and uh, we got to see the sperm whales and all this kind of stuff I'm like well that's not fair i never get to see anything um have to live vicariously through the volunteers yeah exactly yeah which is really unfair because i've done so much work with this amazing place but yeah so it's it's just it's just an amazing place and, and the, the species there are, are are fascinating um we, we were at one point going to do an underwater vr film um working with a free diver mm-hmm. so that they were gonna, they were going to have a famous free diver who would come and swim underneath uh the water obviously from a safe distance away from the sperm whales but then filmed this kind of like underwater vr film uh with with sperm whales that was a project which we were going to run um which we might look at in the future um but yeah no it's just an amazing place and and i i never knew about the project um when i was i did some work in, in naples as a lawyer and never knew about it not many people in naples do know about it so you know that's the beauty of the of the project really is that it's it's doing all this amazing work again kind of unnoticed so that's the reason why we we support it yeah that sounds amazing that you're able to like find these these diamonds of these conservation projects that are literal local people on their own in their own area doing what they can with what they have god you're hitting me in the fields today harry um (laughs) no but we did have a recording uh earlier on in the season with another friend of ours, Kate, who spoke a lot about cetaceans. And I think we've decided it's one of those species that, I mean, to be fair, we could have just an entire podcast season on, let's be honest, just the orca or just the bottlenose dolphin. They're that interesting, but I can't believe they've got their own local like dialect. I mean, I can because they're very smart, but you know, when something just blows your mind a little bit, I think I've got a favourite fact from every single episode so far. Um, could you, by any chance, do the exact same thing and give us a wonderful overview on the Blue Shark Project, which I think you said was a little bit closer to home? Yeah, no, of course I can. Yeah, um, yeah. So this is um, so Andrea is our marine biologist who who set this project up, and I first came across this one when I did a presentation on the conservation project um, at South Devon College in 2017. I think it was. And I was talking about how we can use crowdfunding to help support and help fund um, research projects and how this is a, a really unique way back then. Well, it was, it's obviously not anymore, um, a, a unique way to raise funds for you know research projects. And Andrea sort of um, grabbed me after the presentation and told me that he has this uh, amazing shark project, which he wants to raise some funding for and which involves um, a, a multi-annual um, research project which will study the impact of bioaccumulations and pollutants on the the health of the sharks around the southwest coast of England and it involved him going out on a boat to take genetic samples small genetic samples from the blue sharks and then um, studying those in the chemical laboratory to see how things like microplastics and um, pollutants are affecting the health of the sharks I said that sounds amazing why don't we why don't we see if we can do a crowdfunding campaign to raise some money 
for you to make sure that you have you know the funding in place to do the to do the research and then to do the next stage which would be the, the sampling and the you know the genetic sampling as well so the first thing we did together is that we launched a crowdfunding campaign and uh which was really fun we created like blue shark t-shirts uh we had a whole bunch of the team who worked on social media for us um and we put together this really cool campaign and we raised i think 1500 pounds which doesn't seem like a lot but actually it was it was it gave the project the legs to start which was amazing and, and andrea has then subsequently gone on to get some more funding from from different places for the project so that was how how it started um again you're not going to believe this i haven't seen any of the blue sharks <laughs> so every every time yeah it's not fair is it so every time i go down andrea's like uh, why don't you come down, you know, in September, we're going to go out, it's going to be amazing. And I'm like, yeah, definitely. So I booked some time off work. And um, every time I go down, a storm hits, right? So the boat can't even go out. So <laughs> that's happened to me three times on this on this trip. I feel like you deserve so, some good karma for all the work yeah. you do and how busy it sounds like you are. You deserve some good karma with this, any of this and animal spotting. I, I totally agree with you, actually, Lexi, 100%. It's about time I get to see something cool. I know, I feel like you're going to have a card up your sleeve where you're like, but then I saw this, but I, I also feel like that, that it's, card... It's not, I'm going to tell you, it's not coming at all, unfortunately. <laughs> I wish it was. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I've never been out there, but so a lot of our um, volunteers have, and um, they, you can actually go snorkeling with the sharks as well, which is amazing. So we've got loads of footage of people who have um, done the research. We've got films. There's a whole website on the Blue Shark Project. And um, we've we've gathered a lot of really good feedback. Um, so the students love it, and uh, it's, it, but this 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 project is also really quite personal to me as well because we did have a uh, one of our volunteers who uh, went with Andrea on the project, and uh, two years ago she sadly died, um, and her family were just so lovely that they donated some funding to the project in in remembrance of her so yeah that was really sad um so that's you know is there's is a real personal connection to the project as well um and every time i think we send a young person out on the project it gives them uh, a life-changing experience and the they can then use that you know when they go to apply for other jobs to find a job in the sector as well so it's great andrea is just this amazing guy he really is he's you know just we had the vaquita project recently and he attended our hackathon and he put together a uh an e-dna protocol which they might be able to use in the sea of cortez just in a couple of hours he's one of the most intelligent scientists i've ever worked with and works on so many different issues and he's really passionate about sharks we call him the shark man and um He's just a joy to work with, really. But the great thing about the Blue Shark Project is that once we've really, so we, we're really trying to hone in on this genetic sampling so we can get the best sample possible. And um, we're now going out, I think Andrea is going out again this year, and he'll go out with fishermen this time. Um, the great thing about the project originally was that it was it was it it did not hurt the sharks at all. We didn't have to get on board the sharks. Um, you know, it was a very small sample we got from it, so they, they hardly even noticed. Um, but the cost of going out on the boats were like seven hundred pounds a trip. So that that eats away your funding very quickly. Mm -hmm. And 
we now have to try and think of new ways, you know, cheap and resourceful ways, which we can continue doing the um, doing the project. But the, the good thing is about this one is that it's a multi-annual project. It has um, real scope and you can replicate it then at different places in, in the United Kingdom, but also in, in Europe as well. And we want to create this um, consortium of, and I spoke to him recently, this consortium of um, projects from around the world in of blue shark experts because the blue shark is the most fin shark in the world and the populations are stable in some areas but also plummeting in other areas as well so this consortium will bring together these these global experts which we can work towards a common goal which is to try and get better protection status for the blue shark and to try and help populations rebound you know try and create more marine protected areas and um, try as hard as we can to try and try and you know preserve this incredible species so that's like the longevity of the project and there's so many interesting things we can do you know andrea presents his research to universities across the country we've done lots of group events lots of talks lots of educational outreach um, and we're even starting to do some hackathons now to try and think of some other kind of technological solutions which can help with the research and help protect the sharks so um, I hope we'll have to get you both down there so you can you can go see them. Oh, absolutely. I'm there. I mean, <laughs> pandemic allow it. Yes. I am there. <laughs> I keep thinking that. Yeah, no, I, I have never, ever swam with a shark of any sort, be it dogfish or otherwise, um, in the UK. So I was like, yes, that sounds amazing. And Cornwall is definitely, I have not been to Cornwall in years and I, I just adore it there. It's so lovely. And what I think is super exciting is that you're talking about all of these different Tools, I mean, eDNA, that's a real upcoming yeah. tool. Um, it's quite kind of, there's so much work going into figuring out eDNA and eDNA samples at the moment. So taking the water samples and then looking for trace DNA to be able to track what different species are in the area. Um, I know that it's being used to look at non-native species. And obviously now you're talking about how this tool set that you're developing can be used in replication in different locations uh so that's really interesting and also getting that standardized monitoring practice going i'm a monitoring nerd so i'm excited about all of these different things <laughs> um but yeah and also so the students obviously help with the field work and i think it's great that you're building those connections with the local people because uh, they are the stakeholders yeah. of the local environment and that andrea's project has done that um and obviously you guys are involved in supporting these kind of things as well so do the students just do the field work or is there the opportunity to do some lab work as well? Yes, there is. Yeah. So I think um, so some of the students have actually done some of the lab work with Andrea as well um, at South Devon College. So, yeah, there's some there's some really great opportunities um, there as well. Definitely. It's really nice to hear that it seems all the boxes ticked. that the Conservation Project International and your work with it and behind it is so flexible not only to yeah. the individuals that you onboard as projects, but also to the volunteers that you take on. So the fact if you've got somebody that is really, really into the monitoring and the data processing after a research trip, that you can be like, sure, if we've got capacity, we can take you on. Like, that sounds incredible. But how, you know, as this is, you know, your part-time passion project that is, huge and has such a massive impact how do you manage to keep your eye on the progress and the updates of all these projects that you're working on but also 
think about what you've just mentioned, the longevity of these projects and ensuring that you can adapt and overcome and like make sure that you're still fundraising for these things and helping out. Like how, how do you balance that? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. Um, I think the monitoring and evaluation part is, is super interesting and something we're really, really looking you know, more into is, is how can you measure the impact of the project itself? How can you measure the impact you're having with the volunteers? So some of the ways we do that are how many volunteers come work with us, then go to work in full-time conservation you know, as a result of what we, the experience we've given them. They then go off to get a job, so you can mark your impact quite well there. Um, you can mark using um, like different things such as doing questionnaires, for example, you know, do a questionnaire pre someone coming on board of us and post. And then you, you've got like a data set there you can sort of uh, measure against just to show the impact of what you're doing. Um, we measure how many students come in and work with us or how many partnerships we have and and what the outcomes of each of the projects are. So it's a really good question. And I think and I think this is something which um, charities do struggle with, I think, because if you're an NGO, you rely on grant funding, for example, to run a, a project, which might only be for one year or two years. After you've sort of done two years on the project and the funding's no longer there, you then have to you know, look elsewhere for funding. So this is one of the drawbacks, I think, of the traditional conservation model is that you are very donor heavy and don't reliant on, you know, programmatic work, which which is funded. So to overcome that barrier um, from a conservation point of view, but also from a young conservationist point of view as well, we're, we're starting to push more and more into running more unique ways of tackling conservation issues. So this is where like the hackathon comes into, into play because it, it, you can create a prototype or something, a new sort of innovative solution over two days and you can then develop that solution, not as an NGO, but as a, as a startup, as a social enterprise. And not only then does that open you up to uh, trading income, so you can actually have a scalable project which you can build and you know, bring income in, so then you can pay for your team, you know, and then scale up as any other business would. But you can also, as a social enterprise, also apply for certain grant funds and community funds and impact investment and things like that. So that's the model, which is this social entrepreneurship kind of thinking in conservation, where I really think a lot of the focus is, is going to be focused on in, in time to come. And now see how your job, your, your recent moving job makes a lot of sense. For yes. Your personal development, but also the development of your charity. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> um, just on those notes, We've mentioned the hackathon quite a few times. That's obviously yeah. to do with the Vaquita. Um, but before we get on to diving deep into the Vaquita, we've spoken about the illegal marine wildlife trade and a few other things. Is there any other projects you want to add before we deep dive into the hackathon and the Vaquita? Yeah, there is. There's, there's one really cool one, which we um, started working on and then COVID sort of you know, messed it up. Um, this was working with a research project in British Columbia, uh, which has this uh, like a fjord. An amazing place where uh, orcas, sperm whales, and fin whales all sort of live together. Uh, again, loads of like the indigenous front first nations people has a massive cultural um, importance to them. So they have a, again a bit like Iskia, they have a treasure trove of acoustic data. And one of the projects we were working on, which we got quite far into, was 
thinking, how can we think of a really cool way of illustrating this um, acoustic data, so the sounds of these amazing whales and dolphins. And so what we did is that we partnered with a, a British orchestra and we, um, we created a synergy between classical music and the sounds of whale song oh, wow. into a, a classical musical performance. So that was the end goal, which we would then have a, um, we were hoping to have it at the Natural History Museum, have an actual orchestra um, concert. People can come, they can, you know, we'd have some talks with the researchers and then we'd, they'd obviously listen to this beautiful music. So that was one project which which I love and I really want to you know get back on that when we can. That is so innovative. Yeah, I'm like sign me up, sign me up now. <laughs> I am obsessed. There's one that's to do with stars where they've done like each star is allocated a certain pitch and a certain note and a certain like loudness. So listening to this, I'm like, I've literally just in my notes in capitals, sign me up, Harry. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. We got a sample from the um, the composer. Uh, and uh, it, it sounded so cool. Um, so yeah, no, I'm I really, we're really very keen to do this, and we we want to create a page on the website for acoustic specialisms and young conservationists and acoustic data, and to to share. You know, I think one of the things about conservation as well, it's very competitive. So we want to um, we want to share all this research and data so people can listen to it and think, wow, these creatures are amazing, and maybe they're worth saving. Yeah, and that's the point in this podcast a little bit. I think Hannah and I have that hope that by talking to young conservationists, PhD students and, you know, people like yourself, we can ignite that passion and fuel that confidence for people just to say, try it, do it, find your experiences, give things a go. Like conservation feels big and scary, but you can forge your own path with small but achievable steps. Yeah. And I think you're a very good example of that, Harry. Oh, well, thanks, actually. No, I, I totally agree. I think, um, and this is, the, this is one of the great things, isn't it? Is that, you know, everyone has a certain skill set and um, everyone can c- contribute to, um, and it, the, the problem is that sometimes when you think of a conservation, if you were like to take one of the big NGOs, for example, it's, there's not many opportunities for you, for you really to get involved unless you donate or you get a cuddly toy. So, you know, what we're trying to do is to say, you know, brilliant, you have a skill set in accountancy. Well, you know, here's an NGO who needs an accountant. Brilliant. Get involved. There you go. You can use your skills for a greater purpose. And yeah, like breaking down those barriers of entry to conservation from people who have certain skill sets, young people who care about the issues and giving them an avenue to actually you know, get involved and have some impact. I want to listen to. Oh, yeah. The first time I listened to that Starry Night thing, it like literally nearly made me cry because it's just like, wow. So um, no no that's great I mean that's the whole aim of the project is to create that emotional connection with the audience and to have this like blue planet ripple effect that um, David Attenborough has and uh, yeah to try and get more people you know engaged in the issue yeah I just want Covid to be over so you can continue doing all this amazing work and picking up these new projects now like not even for a personal reason anymore um right so as Hannah said we've mentioned a hackathon loads and loads yeah. of times so I want to use this as kind of like one of the last big things we talk about first and foremost what's a hackathon yeah good question i get this a lot <laughs> um and so so a hackathon is a collaborative event where people come together to solve problems probably the most simple way i can describe it but your one was just 
was it a month, two months ago? So it was not everybody came together physically. It was a virtual. That's right. Yeah, we did it virtually. Yeah, you can. I do them in person, or you can, or you can run them virtually. So, what was the aim of this hackathon? You've mentioned the vaquita. What is a vaquita? And then, yeah, just you, you go for it. You've done such an amazing job of explaining everything so well. <laughs> okay. Like, so, so vaquita is um, the the smallest porpoise and the most critically endangered marine mammal on earth. And they live in the uh, Sea of Cortez, which is in Baja, California, in Mexico, uh, not far from the border of the US. It is a evolutionary unique species by the ZSL. Um, and there's only less than 10 remaining, probably less than eight. So they're found nowhere else on Earth. There's none in captivity. Uh, so this is really the last stand of the, the vaquita. Um, they're really very beautiful. So they have these black distinct colorings around their eyes. Um, they're very small, around 1.5 to 2 meters. Um, but just a, a really enchanting species. So I, I always heard about the vaquita. And I always knew that it was a species of concern. Um, but it wasn't until really I looked more into the issue back in August last year. And I came across the work of a, um, a guy called Andrea Croster who works in an organization called Earth League International and a documentary called The Sea of Shadows, which I would thoroughly recommend watching. So this is a Nat Geo film. And this this takes a deep dive into the, the issue of the Vaquita and really explains the reasons for its sharp decline. So the Vaquita's declined from, I think, around 550 in 1990 to now less than 10. So in less than 30 years, we've lost a huge amount of them. And Andrea's work is not so much conservation focus but is focused more on criminality. So he is the first conservation intelligence organization where he um, works undercover with agents to infiltrate wildlife trafficking gangs and to gather intelligence and work with law enforcement agencies to arrest and prosecute them. So as you know, wildlife trafficking is the fourth most um, wealthiest illicit crime on earth behind sex trafficking, weapons trafficking, and the drugs trafficking trade. It is an enormous problem. And um, in, in the Vaquita's instance, it is a victim of the wildlife trafficking trade. So the Vaquita is not targeted for itself, but is a, is a product of bycatch because um, illegal fishermen and poachers are targeting what's known a fish called the Tatuaba fish. So the Tatuaba fish is a, a, bit, a bit like a big sea bass. It's this huge fish. And its bladder is uh, worth a lot of money on the, the black market in China and Southeast Asia. So it's actually used um, as a, an investment. So basically, they will, the fishermen will catch these big Tataba fish, will dry the bladders, and the bladders will then be um, transported illegally back into Hong Kong, back then onto China. And the bladders are, are eaten uh, as a delicacy but are also bought by investors because they know the Tatuaba itself is a critically endangered species. So the value of that investment goes up. Right. And this, um, yeah, so it's, it's pretty, uh, the, the situation in some of the, with the Vaquita is, is exceptionally dangerous. And the, um, the criminal syndicates behind this Tatuaba trade are linked to cartel, uh, mafia gangs, where they are armed to the teeth, you know, with AK-47s and uh, rocket launchers and things like that, and um, Chinese nationals in Mexico, which are part of the Chinese mafia gang. So they work together 
to to with this illegal trade and supply the demand which is coming from China and the Far East. So this is not a conservation. Well, basically, this is a failure of conservation, the Vaquita, as far as I see it, because conservationists have been working since 1990 on this issue. Mexican government have spent $110 million in trying to save, you know, into pouring this into conservation methods to try and save the Vaquita. And it just subsequently hasn't worked. And the reason is behind that is of this, this criminal issue. So it's a criminality issue. So Andrea's work is very much focused on, you know, taking down these these criminal syndicates and hoping to prosecute them and disrupt this illegal supply chain. Because if you cut off the demand for the Tatuaba, then the, these fishing nets called gill nets, which have been um, launched everywhere in the Sea of Cortez, will hopefully disappear. And, and that's really the only hope we have for the Vaquita. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think you've touched on a really important thing there within conservation when not only you know working with local people and ensuring that we're providing livelihoods and making sure that people have a say in what's happening to their environment but I think it's that are you treating the symptom or are you treating the cause and if you Mm. sink all of this money wherever you get it from but say for example funded by the government to save a species and it's being put in the wrong part of conservation because you're looking at a symptom then you're not going to solve the issue that you're looking at so I think this is a really important like message that you do have to take a step back and be like right okay yes of course the vaquita being on the knife edge of extinction is horrifying and upsetting and it shouldn't happen and sure we can like maybe take the gillnets out of the water but if we just take one out who's going to put another one back in so it is taking that step further and that step back and having that wider angle view that i think is really really important just to highlight again uh, absolutely i couldn't agree more with you um you're 100 right this is an instance where conservationists maybe need to take a bit of a back seat on this issue and other experts like law enforcement agencies and you know prosecution lawyers and um, intelligence uh, agencies like An- Andrea's work. This is where the resources and the funding should be should be focused on because we've we've ignored out the real reason really of um, why the vaquita and it's not just about the vaquita you know it's, it's also about the all of the um, all, all of the uh, marine species that live in live in the Sea of Cortez. Um, so yeah, you're right. This is a this is a criminality issue and not a conservation one. And many, many different um, case studies like this all all around the world. And it's, um, you know, the, the wildlife trafficking side is, I, I have a high interest in this area, uh, not only from a legal point of view, but from trying to understand the economics behind the supply chain. It's really quite fascinating, but tragic. And uh, a lot of the work we're looking at in the future is also going to be this link between the illegal wildlife trade and zoonic diseases. So, you know, COVID-19, you could have a COVID-20, which could come from an illegal species. And just look at the impact that that's had on the global economy, on, on the world. And again, it's like, come on, we know where COVID, well, we, we have assumptions where we have an understanding that a lot of the pandemics, global health pandemics that we, we're faced with, whether it's Ebola um, and many others are coming from wildlife. We know that. Mm-hmm. So if we want to prevent the next global health pandemic, then surely we should be doing 
as an international force everything we can to stop the illegal wildlife trade before we get hit by something which is much worse than COVID-19 and can devastate again the, the global economy and the world as we know it. And this is why these issues around illegal wildlife trade um, should be treated as national security issues because not only are the criminals involved in this trade also using illegal wildlife trade to finance illicit sex trafficking, drugs trafficking or weapons trafficking, but the implications of allowing um, another health pandemic has massive implications on, on member states around the world. So it's this convergence of threats that we need to start taking the illegal wildlife trade as seriously as we tackle terrorism, as we tackle the drugs trafficking trade, because the implications are just as serious. And that is kind of like the message we need to be, hit, be hitting home, not only with the Vikita, but on many different case studies around the world. I think that's so interesting to highlight as well, because it's such this underground operation that a lot of what goes on, potentially people don't realise. And as you said, these detrimental effects from health, um, from a human population point of view, but also from an mm. animal population point of view, if you're introducing things that aren't supposed to be there, it can have really negative effects for an animal population, be it spread of disease that then makes the native population ill and outcompetes the native population. And these are all things that, again, that kind of multidisciplinary approach is the way you need to go to be able to identify this. And one of the ones that comes to my mind, I worked um, a fair amount on sea turtles before I started getting obsessed with my now muddy PhD, um, was actually how you find the trade routes because... I didn't even realize that these bladders, for example, and it makes sense that they become this investment, but how they get from Baja to then get to China and these kind of things and sea turtle eggs, they've used 3D printed sea turtle eggs with little chips inside them to track that kind of movement because it happens so quickly. And I think unless you start to educate and people start to educate themselves on what's happening, it is something that because it's out of maybe people's focus I don't want to say turn a blind eye, but unless you really start thinking about it, people maybe don't realise how big a problem it is that you've just highlighted. But I think you're right, Hannah. There is an ign ignorance is bliss situation here. Mm. There's so many conservation stories that are so big and so sad. And you can learn so much just by watching documentaries, but it's not going to teach you everything. But you can feel like you've got enough just by watching, you know, the suite of David Attenborough documentaries that we've all been obsessed with for years. So I think it is easy to say there is a limit on what people will take in, because I think there is enough sadness in the world when it comes to our conservation issues. But I think it is very important to be highlighting exactly what Harry's been saying of like, even if you just, you can't unlearn this, you're not going to be able to unhear this episode. You're going to now have an awareness of it. Like, I know I'm probably going to do a bit more research into it. I say probably, absolutely. So I don't know what I can physically do other than support the Conservation Project International and watch what they carry on doing as a as an organisation. But I will become more educated because I feel it is important now that I know about it. And I think it's that. It's having the ability to say, I didn't know about this before, but I'm going to improve from this point. I imagine you see that quite frequently, Harry. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you both touched on some really, really good points there. And I wonder if a, if a, if a, um, a documentary series like Blue Planet, but maybe if it was focused on the illegal wildlife trade, um, which would be on BBC, for example, would, would have a really strong impact. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about the pangolin, for example, you know, the, the most trafficked mammal in the world. Um, I, if I was to speak to some, maybe even some of my own family, if I asked them what a pangolin is, they probably would, would not know what it is. Um, but look what's happening to that species. It's been obliterated, uh, literally boiled alive for its scales. So it's, it's, it is really, it's a very difficult one. Um, but, but I think the first stage of, yeah, I think raising awareness and making people aware of it and linking those links back to, you know, the global health and thinking, so uh, it's always, I think, to get people to care, you have to have, it's this kind of thing with climate change, isn't it? You know, we both, we all know about this, is that we've been talking about climate change for God knows how long now. Maybe 10 years, at least I've been talking about it. You know, people have been talking about it since 1970, 1950. But many people still think it's not really an issue or doesn't impact their lives. Well, I think COVID has demonstrated that all changes because COVID did impact your life in the most strongest way you basically had to stay in your house you know some people haven't seen their family for a year you can't go out and see your friends and unless we tackle these issues now what comes next will make COVID look very insignificant whether that's so that that is I think trying to drive home that message as well to say look we really need to start tackling these issues because if we don't then I don't even know what life is going to be like for my grandchildren, you know, if, if yeah. we continue going down this, and it's really depressing talking about this, but if we do continue down this business as usual approach, uh, it's going to be very bleak, unfortunately. I don't want to lower the tone, but it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not looking too positive at the moment. So that's why we need to really start thinking more collaboratively and, and, um, you know, trying, trying new ways of tackling these issues. That's exactly it, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And I mean, you're talking to two conservationists on a conservation podcast where obviously we've obviously expecting to have a certain type of audience that hopefully share with their friends and family. But I think you're right, a multidisciplinary approach thinking with these new innovative ideas and trying to change the course that we're currently on is really, really important. But the first stage of that is raising awareness. And whenever I make anything that's um, to try and get any sort of public engagement or public change, any sort of like informative educational activity, it is that it's giving people the wider view of what the issue is, but then really narrowing it down to, and this is how it impacts you individually. But it's not all bad. This is how you can make one small tiny change that will barely impact your life to make it better on this massive scale. And I think we've all we can all relate to that in the sense of recycling. I, When I was growing up, we didn't have recycling boxes in the house. Every single house in the United Kingdom has the ability and the knowledge and the access to be able to know how to recycle properly. And yes, of course, it is the third step in reduce, reduce, reuse, recycle. But it is something that actually makes a difference. So I think if we can do that with some of these different conservation issues, then we can insight change i mean just look at like you said what blue planet did with plastic straws Mm. 
it's possible. We just, I think as conservationists, we just need more more BBC time. <laughs> Absolutely, Lacey. And 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 also the good thing is is that we we have movements now. You know, this this wasn't about ten years ago when I was starting to get involved in this thing. We have Extinction Rebellion. We've got Greta. Mm-hmm. We've got so many young people, which, you know, for them, climate change and the environment are probably the most important issues out of any of the political issues now. You know, we have um, we have things are changing. Black Lives Matter. We've got diversity and inclusion. These are all really positive and progressive steps, which our generation, I'm a little bit older than you both now, 31. But, you know, the new generations which are coming through can see the urgency of these things, can see the unfairness in everything. And and that gives me a huge amount of hope is that the future change makers, you know, will start will be the leaders, the future leaders in changing the course on climate change and environmental destruction. But that is the hope that we have is that there are so many young people that truly, really passionately care about these issues. We have to equip them. We have to give them um, platforms and we have to empower them. And that is a really important message. And like you said, Lexi, with plastics, so many people can make just small changes, can't they, to their you know, their daily lifestyle, which can have maximum impact. Imagine if millions and millions of people started making small changes, whether it's through transitioning to renewable renewable energy, changing things, you know, becoming vegetarian. All of these small changes have a ripple effect and, and can really lead to greater change. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're segueing really, really nicely into my next question. So you've mentioned, obviously, just everything that the Conservation Project International aims to do for young conservationists, but how can our listeners get involved with your charity if they would like to? Or myself, or <laughs> Hannah. I'm, I'm there for the sharks. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, there you go. So there's, there's opportunities to, um, to get involved with the conservation work we do. So the um, first thing to do is to follow us on Instagram. And um, that's like the, the platform we use mostly. I think that's at TC Project INT. And um, one interesting project, actually, which we would love for your listeners to get involved in, is that I'm really also interested in, in how we can make conservation more inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've just done a, a recent podcast series um, or an Instagram series, as I would say, um, on women leadership and conservation. So we interviewed many um, young women who are working, you know, both like yourselves would be really great to to have you guys on to talk about, you know, the work that you're both doing. Um, and we interviewed, uh, I think, around seven or eight young females that are doing some extraordinary work. And now we, we want to open that up to more, you know, diverse and more inclusive from, you know, different communities to also highlight some of the work they're doing. Because I, I do think there is also an issue around um people from different backgrounds and different communities being able to get involved in conservation as well. So I do think there is a, a diversity issue, um, especially for young people coming into these areas as well. So that's, we would love to hear from anyone who might be interested in, in, in that. Um, we'll, be, we'll be doing lots of future. We're hoping to launch a mentorship program. So linking young people to professional conservation um, professionals and providing one-to-one and group mentoring. So that's something we're hoping to look at um, pretty soon. Um, and then we'll do more of these. You know, the, the hackathons are so great because people can just apply and can, you know, can work on different solutions and it's all free. So, you know, there's no cost to, to getting involved in those kind of things. And more people who are interested. I mean, if, if any of your listeners are interested in this orchestra project, for example, 
and would like to help us try and fundraise or do some really fun crowdfunding events or anything around that that would be amazing because then if we get the funding in we can really bring that project to life i think me and so Hannah are already here to give you any support <laughs> that you need so Excellent. i can't imagine any of our listeners will be like nah no thank you i think you'll have a few an influx at least of our friends and the people that we've already interviewed well perfect that would be amazing and and then we're gonna we're gonna build a community space as well so we can onboard members in a in a much more easier way and have like a channel where we can share like updates you know um what kind of jobs there are in the conservation sector um and build this like build this community out and have regular catch-ups we, we do this anyway we have like regular zoom catch-ups where we see how everyone is so yeah building that community element in is, is something we're, we're focusing on as well we've just got to find the tech and you know do all, the, all that stuff awesome no that makes sense yeah we'll make sure all the links and everything are in the show notes and on the website as well so that people can access everything and hopefully easily navigate to all of your social medias and things and yeah if you're listening and getting super even i think your message throughout has been any idea any thought any want or need for networking if you're sat there thinking i i i have an idea for this project is just to get in contact and reach out, make connections through LinkedIn, Instagram, and all of the other links that we will definitely be providing. <laughs> definitely. Be bold. You've got to be bold. It's a competitive world out there. So um... I close my eyes and click yes on something. So that's been my new thing. Is, uh, <laughs> to stop thinking about it and to just go for it. Ah. And yeah, it, it's a good way to uh, make sure you're grabbing some opportunities while also thinking about your time management. And <laughs> never forget, you need those friends to be like, yep, you clicked yes, you're going to do it. And giving you the pep talk before you do whatever it is you signed up for. Because that's been my recent role. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think we can all get a bit carried away when it comes to the conservation stuff, doesn't it? We'll just try and do as much as you can. <laughs> yeah. But no, I really wanted to thank you, Harry. This episode has has, has had me absolutely cheesing. I've had goose pimples. I've obviously hit despair with you whilst we've been talking about the wildlife crime issues. I don't think I've been on such a roller coaster for a while on this podcast, but thank you for being such an engaging guest. And we're kind of hitting towards the end of the podcast now. So Hannah's going to ask you a couple of questions, but I just wanted to like, thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Much appreciated. Yeah. Like she said that so well. And Harry, like just, your detail and the way you answer questions has been amazing. Um, one of the last questions I'm wanting to ask is if people are listening, thinking I've got these ideas of an NGO I want to set up, are you able to give, I don't know, I'm going to say five-step process right now. And it isn't, it isn't a five-step process at all. If there were five tick boxes that people had to kind of start off with of setting up their own NGO, what would they do? Really good question. Um, we did an NGO challenge last year with Plymouth University. So um, I can kind of bring up some, and I, I was also, well, I still do some charity law as well. Um, I think the first thing is to think about what is the purpose of what you're trying to do? Is there anyone else who's already doing that? If there are, are there ways you can partner with them? Um, and what is unique about you know your, your approach? So when you set up a charity, you have to think of what's charity objectives. So you have a, a certain goals or objectives about what your charitable purpose is going to be. And they kind of form the, 
the activities of your organization when you move forward. So I think that's really important is to have a look at, you know, what's out there. Um, can I bring a, a unique angle to this? Um, and what, what would be the purpose of, of doing that? Secondly, if you're looking to set up a charity is um, you have to think about charity trustees. And these are um, trustees have a fiduciary duty under law to basically they'll be the owners of the charity. So they will be the people who will be making the most important decisions. Um, and you have to have a minimum of three before you incorporate it uh, as a charity. So having to think about who who would you like on your board? You know, is it going to be a scientist? Would you like someone who has other skills, like maybe a, from a legal background or an accountant background? So having a real think about who the main people are you're going to onboard your organisation. I think fun, funding. So funding is a really critical thing um, to think about. And I would also encourage people not only think about setting up a charity, but set, think, as I mentioned, I mentioned at the start, is there a business angle to what you want to do? Can you set up a, a kelp farm or a seaweed farm? Can you come up with a, a carbon offsetting scheme? You know, can you plant trees and then get corporates to uh, sponsor you by planting trees? Look at, look at the corporate sector because a lot of um, big private institutions are now looking to transition um, into more environmental social governance kind of work. So how can you think of a new innovation which is scalable, which you can charge the corporate sector for? So think about your, your fee structure um, and think about the impact. And I think impact is, is again, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, is, is super important. You know, how can you measure the impact of what you're doing? Is it tangible? What are your objectives? What are your overall outcomes? You know, that's really important as well. Um, have a think about jurisdictions. So is, you know, where is the focus of your charity going to be? Is it going to be based in the UK or is it going to be more international? If it's more international, do I have to think about partnering with international organizations? Is there a community element to what I'm doing? You know, if I'm looking at the Sumatran Rhino, is there indigenous communities which we can partner with on the ground? I think local people and indigenous groups have such great knowledge and customs of dissolving conservation issues. And um, and when you think about other jurisdictions, sometimes it's really difficult. You might need people who can speak a local language, you might need translators, um, thinking about local laws and customs and how that applies to the work you might be doing. So there are just some also awesome, some other things. And, and, and then also think about business development, marketing and social media. So creating a brand of, of what you're doing, like think about the logo, think about your social media presence, the name, the name is really important and that takes ages thinking about a really cool name. And we're, we're thinking about setting up a new entity at the moment to, um, to do some stuff and the name, oh, we've come up with some absolute shockers. Um, so uh, yeah, thinking about a really cool name. And what I love at the moment is like disruptors. So let's disrupt conservation right let's come up with a, a totally unique and wild name which doesn't have the word earth in which doesn't have the word nature and doesn't have the word conservation in and let's do something which is has maximum impact but is a completely different crazy angle uh, that can be scalable so like wild ideas love those um innovation as well i'd say like you know can you use technology to purpose you know further your purpose of what you're doing um 
I think I've babbled on there for quite a long time, but hopefully there's some there's some things in there which might be helpful. I think it comes down to really, you know, having a really great idea and making it scalable and selling that idea. I think they're really three really important things about how you do it. And then lastly, last thing I'll say is that operationally as well, you know, really, really thinking about your support network around you, because when you set up an organization, it's, it's bloody tough, you know, you have to become as an entrepreneur, you have to become not only a conservationist, you have to have your legal hat on, your finance hat, you've got to be business plans, um, pitch decks, you've got to be a social media, some of the stuff when I was doing all this, I did all this myself for quite for a long time now I'm lucky to have a support network around me so having uh, as uh, friends or family or people you really like and trust having a support network around you is so important for not in you know your mental health your well-being and and also to help you with your mission you know someone there just to remind you that what you're doing is really cool keep at it you know don't give in and keep up the great work so um that's also a really important part of setting up an organization thank you for that amazing overview i think it was such a well-rounded answer to that question so i can tell that you've done similar work like you said with plymouth university that was just fantastic and i think that applies actually when you're saying about it (laughs) the names thing yes world about (laughs) conservation has had probably about 25 different names and involved afternoons of sitting there and just saying words and deciding what we like (laughs) and same with our logo. It's had several different logos, but that was then decided on um, and colors. But it is what you've just said. Also, it doesn't just apply to setting up your own NGO or setting up your own conservation project or any project that it, it applies to any project in any way, shape or form. I think of some of the stuff you said, obviously, some things to a lesser extent, but support networks, especially. And obviously, you've spoken about building them and building different types of network. Um, but yeah, your friends, your family, the people you work with. And just getting those little bits of experience that you've just spoken about that can help you with all these different parts of this process. But that was an amazing, amazing answer, Harry. So thank you so much. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, and I think the only thing I would add to it is just once you've got all this knowledge and once you've decided that you've gathered all the things that you need and done all the internet searches, just try it. Like, if you fail because you've tried, you will have learned something. And I think Hannah and I had to give ourselves these kind of pep talks before we started the podcast, but we're so happy we've done it. And I think you only regret what you didn't do. So if you've got an idea and you really, really want to go for it, just go for it. Like Harry said, be bold. Don't ask, you don't get. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you two have done an amazing thing, you know, Um, this podcast series is is fantastic. And you've done this off your own initiative. And like you said, Lacey, you'd never thought about it. You never would have done it. Yeah. Um, right. We are very close to the end of the podcast. Harry, have you got anything else that we haven't mentioned or we haven't asked or anything that you haven't covered that you'd like to chat about? No, I don't think so. I think I've covered, you know, most most things that we're we're doing. And um, yeah, no, no, it's been it's been great. And it's it's really when I when I speak about all the stuff we've done, it's quite nice because we've done so much. And sometimes it's you have to take a bit of a step back to to sort of go across all the stuff you've done before. So it's been really nice from, from that aspect. And um, it's been lovely speaking with you both. Oh, good. I'm happy you've enjoyed it. Hannah, is there anything else you'd like to ask? Uh, I think we've pretty much covered everything. And I think that's also another great point of just 
taking a step back and looking at everything that you've achieved or all the skills you've developed is such a good practice to do regardless of what stage of your career or life you're at. Um, but no, I think that's pretty much it. So so I would just say thanks for chatting to us today, Harry. And thank you to everyone that's listening to us. And we hope everyone has an absolutely wild day. And bye. bye. Thank you for listening today. As always, we have been Wild About Conservation and you have been awesome. Please do leave us a review. We would really appreciate it and we do read them all. To keep exploring with us, drop us an email or find us on our socials. All the links are in our description and the show notes. If you enjoy our show and want to support us, we are also on Patreon. Just £1 a month, 25p an episode, will cover our creation costs. And anything above that, we donate to charity. Thank you to those of you that are already helping us to keep creating. Our chosen charity for this season are the British Divers Marine Life Rescue, who are an organisation dedicated to the rescue and well-being of all marine animals in distress around the UK. Donations will go to training teams of volunteers and maintaining specialised equipment that is vital for their work. Don't forget to look out for our next episode next Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If we aren't there, do let us know. And remember, step outside and get wild about conservation. Bye! How do you get wild? Watching wildlife documentaries. Wildflower painting. Diving. Wild swimming. Ocean watching. Rock climbing. Bird watching. Listening to podcasts. Hill walks. Visiting a wildlife charity.